The Army is taking steps to put data analytics and artificial intelligence at the heart of decision-making. It's already had success doing that with predictive maintenance of vehicles and cyber operations, but the Army faces challenges getting the right data to people on the battlefield. For an update, Federal News Network's Jory Heckman spoke with the Army's Chief Data Officer, David Markowitz. At the heart of that is trying to make sure the right information is available at Echelon to improve decision-making. So there's several levels of how to try to enable that to work. One is simplifying the data space to make sure the right data that's easy to understand and is trustworthy is available at the point of need. Make it available at Echelon so that not only is available kind of at the enterprise level, but at the tactical level, having the right kind of data governance in place to make sure we can select the right data, make sure it's curated and make sure it's being pushed to the right locations. So uh, and then there's aspects of tooling to make sure we've kind of got the right architecture, the right tool sets available to kind of enable activities to occur at speed. We find if we really simplify the data itself so that's easily understandable kind of at the edge and provide some right tools, you get a lot of local you power kind of that data democracy or and that kind of citizen analyst to really drive things forward. Sometimes when we have some of our major data platform where we see a lot of data analytics, if we provide like a new integrated data set, say between finance and contracting, we'll see data analytics at the edge jump about two to threefold for the next few weeks. And so that's a kind of a good kind of measure of seeing how our rate of success and being able to provide information to support that uh, data centric organization, data centric army. You know, I've had enough of these conversations with chief data officers where they're generally in the same kind of place in terms of getting their offices up and running. One common element seems to always be data inventories, assessing the data maturity of their organizations. I know that the Army and DOD is kind of the tip of the spear of what CDOs are able to do these days. But just tell me, in terms of that overall data maturity, where would you assess the Army currently? And what are those data maturity goals for the future? Big Army. We got a lot of different places. We got places that are excelling and some areas that need some assistance. We took kind of a part of working from OSD, some guides doing a data maturity model and some of a data analytic model too, or where are we in analysis of getting kind of our core capabilities of uh, kind of data management or data governance and availability. We've made a lot of strides on the data governance in our business mission area. Obviously, our intelligence area has huge advantages coming with the IC. It's it's led a lot. We're, we in the Army are copying a lot of what the IC kind of does in terms of how it thinks of itself and manages. Our enterprise network is starting to come up into space with some aspects of governance, understanding and simplifying its data, making sure it's available, especially our cyber force is really quite mature. The area that we're having the most difficulty with is our most complicated, and that's our warfighting area. And that's complicated for a few areas. One is just the number of players that are involved in different areas of how the Army kind of works and just the complexity of the mission. Um, we find we kind of get the speed where we have alignment between the people who are using the data analytics with the people performing the analysis that those decision makers, you know, provide data to enable decision at Echelon, those decision makers being closely aligned with the analysts who are providing those recommendations with the ownership of the data to help with those analysis and then ownership of the policy and the tools that do that. If you get those things kind of aligned, you get a lot of speed that happening within the army for places like the cyber mission force, obviously the intelligence community, our logistics community is very good. And so we're starting to finance is actually not too bad. But in our war fighting, there's a split between those who are 
using the tools in the field versus those who develop them versus those who own more army enterprise processes. And so some of the art is trying to make sure those get aligned in terms of governorship and process. So we've been working with it. We've come up with earlier this summer kind of a new way of data governance in this area. We're under in the army what's called a data cloud execution order. We're in our third year. And this third year has a hyper focus on fighting at the core JTF level to enable kind of the war fighting mission at that area. We're seeing a lot of great activity from operations in Europe right now, huge interests in uh, U.S. Army Pacific, and obviously some of our more traditional areas of looking at our combat development within project conversions with Army Futures Command. So looking at those three areas, we're really trying to get a better focus or jumpstart on data handling data governance, the kind of full data life cycle for critical warfighter mission areas, again, focusing at the core and uh, for us joint JTF level, joint task force. All right. And something that you recognized earlier in answering that question is that it's a big army and that the problem is never that there's not enough data. It's getting to that data quality side of things. And in terms of that data quality, reducing data duplication, making the data in its best, most usable form is, is, of course, a priority for any CDO office. Tell me, what steps or initiatives is the Army taking to do just that? So we're actually, again, big Army. We, we got a mix. Uh, just to give some insight on the, the years. Some years we, we, we have the blessing of duplication too much, right? There's areas where actually we really don't have, we have real deficit and lack of collection or people call it digital exhaust, especially in our tactical formations activities will occur and we'll lose a lot of information. So it's with the unit for a period, for a month or two, locally stored and then kind of disposed of. And so we're really trying to evaluate what it needs to be collected, especially at the edge, to so it doesn't become exhaust, but helps the enterprise as a whole. That is an area where we don't have the type of censoring that we want. And then because tactic units often bandwidth challenge, how to kind of get that out. That's a kind of a challenge area for us. More so probably than the other services and certainly more so than industry, because we need to be able to operate remotely and, you know, with small units dispersed. Of the areas where we have a lot, we've been trying to identify what's called authoritative data, where we'll have kind of the right governance that we call data steward. We'll identify what is the data that is integrated, that is now like the official source. The kind of best examples like Human Resources Command, if you look at their suite of tools after some level of consolidation, they still have, think of it as 300,000 columns of separate data elements, and then every row being kind of like a soldier or civilian in the Army. Most of those columns are duplicates. They're last name, first name, social, DOD ID number across different systems. So to simplify the space, you've got to find out of the 300,000 what's authoritative. It's probably less than 3,000 as it's integrated just because every system kind of made its own local copy. So this type of transitioning from a system view of data to more of an enterprise view where the enterprise then has this kind of integration function where it starts to say this is kind of an integrated data product that has all you need to know and don't worry about like the subfeeder systems this is it that's kind of on the journey that we're on we're trying to help to establish that with certainly a data catalog with it we're in the process of identifying data products that are kind of system independent and we're starting to try piloting API interfaces to these kind of enterprise-level data products right now with some focus on both to help our warfighting area and some of our uh, business mission area. David Markowitz, the Army's Chief Data Officer, speaking with Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Check out Jory's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. 
Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Shane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you, and then and, and how did what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA, and he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? It's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there. Um, I didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we we actually work with a, a number of those too, and and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? 
Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. So he thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour. And you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on, the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, getting confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so while sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that. It isn't one size fits all. And 
a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, how do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. It's, I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay, so, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right? And diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay, and stay um, engaged and passionate. And then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES-level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.